was the lonely hill of Golgotha, there to lay down his life for me. If that isn't love, the ocean is dry. There's no stars in the sky, and the space. that he would leave heaven and come to uh, this stable to be born in a manger. And uh, what we celebrate in this season, that is the greatest picture of love, uh, that he would eventually lay down his life. No greater love than this, than a man would lay down his life for a friend. And uh, we see on that, that hill, Golgotha, where Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we are so thankful for that today. I trust you are anyway. And uh, we're going to look a bit this morning at the Christmas story. And if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read a few verses from uh, the book of Luke here and uh, introduce uh, our text and our, our thought for today. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All right, Luke chapter 2, and very commonly known to us as uh, the, you know, the Christmas story. And for the most part, we've read it before and have at least heard it before. And I want to read uh, just the first eight verses of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up out, out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We're going to look at that thought this morning of, of no room, no room in the inn. And I would ask you this morning to travel back with me to uh, this scene, 
as it unfolds in Scripture. This evening or morning, it doesn't say in Scripture when they arrived in town. You know, for the most part in our mind's eye, we picture uh, a man walking alongside a donkey. And on that donkey is his pregnant wife, and, 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 and Mary is, is bent over in labor pains. And, you know, we picture this, 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 this village in the bottom, at least I do, we picture a village in the bottom of a, of a, of a mountain ravine. And they're traveling downside the, the hillside, and, 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 and Joseph is coaxing that donkey just to go a little bit faster, but not to hit the bumps, you know? And, uh, you know, avoid the bumps. My wife always says I aim for the bumps on the road. I, I don't, all right? They're just everywhere. And, uh, you know, you, you, you go down, and, and, and so this, the same story's been happening for hundreds of years. The woman's been complaining about the bumps, all right? But, uh, no, so here's Mary, you know, don't hit the bumps, Joseph. And so the donkey's going down the mountain, and you can see in the, in the valley there sits the little town of Bethlehem. You know, we picture in our minds that Mary and Joseph, they, they come into town and they, they come to the Super 8, you know, and they go inside and they say, oh, no room in the inn. You know, they go next door to the Red Roof Inn and they say, no, there's no room here either. And finally they get to the last inn and they say, is there room? I mean, my wife is pregnant. Innkeepers, there's something you can do, anything. We're, we've traveled from a far country and we have nowhere to stay. She's going to have a baby at any second. Can you do something? Well, there's no room in the end, but sure, you can stay out back there with the, uh, the animals in, in, the, in the stable. And we picture this, you know, emergency delivery of a, of a child and it's placed in a, in a, in a manger. And really, we've gathered these thoughts or these ideas from a picture on the front of a Christmas card or a movie we've seen, you know, you know the nativity or something of that nature. The Bible doesn't necessarily indicate that uh, these things are, are true. We see in verse number 6, it says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. It's very possible that Mary and Joseph were already in Bethlehem when it came to the point of her having to deliver it. It wasn't even as though that it was an emergency delivery or an early delivery because the Bible says, and remember Luke is the one who wrote this book, and he's a doctor. He says the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She came to full term. And she came to the point in her life where, hey, this baby was ready to come. And so it, it's not necessary that, necessarily true that this was some kind of emergency. They're knocking in the middle of the night on these hotels trying to find a place to stay. You know, we instantly think, of the innkeeper. How inconsiderate. How could he not find a place inside of the inn for a pregnant woman who, who's about to have a child? Well, the, the biblical inn and our picture of an inn today are a little bit different. The inn that is actually talked about here is the, the same kind of inn that Jesus asked for when he had the Last Supper with the disciples. It's more or less an upper room. It's a place because in, in Scripture days, it was common to entertain it was common to, to allow strangers into your home. That was, that was good practice. And so as time progressed, you know, and that was earlier in, the, in Bible times, as time progressed, people uh, became a little bit less uh, fellowshipy. They, they didn't want the strangers in their home so much. And so what they eventually came to the point of doing is building something called a, a caravansary. A caravansary. And what a caravansary is, a place where caravans could rest. They would build an inn most of the time in the center of their village and they would appoint somebody in the town to be the innkeeper. And this innkeeper would take care of all the guests that came into town where they could stay at this inn for free. It was most commonly a, a house over top of a, some type, type of stable structure. Maybe a house over top of a cave or, or a two-leveled house. 
And so we begin to see a little clearer picture that Mary and Joseph are coming into town and everybody's there for tax season. Everybody has to return home. And he says, hey, the inn is full, but you can stay downstairs. It would, it would kind of be equivalent to me going to stay at my brother's house for an emergency. And him saying, hey, you know what? I've got my other 10 brothers and sisters already staying with me, but we can put up a cot in the, in the garage for you. It'll be warm. It'll, it'll be safe. You know, you can stay in there. And that was the equivalent of what happened to Mary and Joseph. Here they are uh, in the, in the, uh, the caravansary. And Mary comes to the point of having this child, Jesus. Because there was no room in the inn, the Bible says. And so Jesus was placed in a manger. The reason that Jesus was born in the stable is not purely just because there was no room in the inn. There was no room in the inn, and that's why they were in the stable. But there's an underlying cause here. And I want us to look this morning at just a couple thoughts, some things that we can observe from this passage. It's obvious that the problem in Bethlehem that evening was not that the stable was the only place to stay. It's that it was the only place offered to stay. And the reason it was the only place offered to stay is because the people of Bethlehem were not expecting Jesus to be born. As far as they knew, it was just another child. A pregnant woman came into town and was going to give birth. The problem this evening was not that there was no room in the inn. The problem this evening when Jesus was born in that little town of Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, was not the lack of space in the inn. It was the lack of preparedness on the people in Bethlehem. I can imagine if it were me, and I really felt like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was going to be born in my city, that I would have prepared a little bit. If I had known, and I can imagine if these people at that time had known that Jesus was going to be born in that town their night, that night, I have no doubt that they would have placed sentries at the entrance to the city or people to keep a lookout for a pregnant woman, any sign that a, a, a child could be born in their town. For after all, it had already been prophesied 600 years before Jesus was ever bo- even born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied in Malachi chapter, fu- uh, chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. It had already been prophesied 600 years before that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. The problem that night was not the lack of space. It was the problem of a lack of planning. The people did not know that Jesus was going to be there or born that night. And I want us to notice the first thing this morning, an observation from this passage, is you cannot plan for the unexpected. You cannot plan for the unexpected. I enjoy going to auctions. And uh, it's, a, it's a hobby, try to pick up little things that I can resell and just something that I enjoy to do. I was at an auction and recently and they were auctioning off emergency food supplies. A prepper who had died, left behind a basement full of emergency food supplies. He thought that he was going to survive the end of the world, packed his basement full of five-gallon buckets full of food that is sealed and good for 20 years. He thought for sure, hey, man, when it comes, I'm going to be ready. But you know what? Something unexpected. 
He died. <laughs> he died before he ever got to open any one of those cans. They were auctioning off buckets that in retail cost $250, $275, and they were selling them at auction for $50, bucks. These buckets that will serve 200, 300 people in one five-gallon bucket, you know, gone. Everything that he had invested and everything that he had put aside, gone. You cannot plan for the unexpected. We see here that over time the people of Bethlehem had lost focus on the fact that the Messiah was to be born in their town. They were, it was foretold, hey, Jesus is coming and the, the King of kings and Lord of lords will be born in your city. But the, the, time, the, the, amounts of, the, the amount of time, those 600 years, had lulled the people to sleep to the fact that the Messiah would be born in their town. Psalms chapter 10 verse 4 dis- <laughs> prescribes or describes what this condition, it is, condition is called. It's called, God was not in all their thoughts. That's the condition. They had a condition that God was not in all of their thoughts. They had forgotten. They had gotten busy with things in life and just planning the everyday life. And I'm sure that innkeeper was overwhelmed with the amount of people that were in town. He was just busy with things that were going on. And when Mary and Joseph appeared at the door, the thought that this could be Jesus didn't even occur to him. The thought of, I have no room to put this pregnant lady. Nowhere to put her. What am I going to do? I'm pulling my hair out here. God was not in all their thoughts. If he had been, I'm sure. I'm sure. If they had just known, I'm sure they would have planned. But they did know. They knew in the back of their minds that Jesus was coming. You even look at the wise men who came from afar off. They noticed the star in the sky the night that Jesus was born. They observed it. But the people right there, the people to whom God was born amongst, His people, His lineage, they had no idea. They were not expecting Christ to be born. And I would like to draw a parallel with that for us today. Just as the people were told 600 years before Christ's birth that He would come, we have been told of the coming of Christ. And it's been some 2,000 years, and I'm afraid that just as the people of of Bethlehem over 600 years forgot the promise that Jesus Christ would come, we over the last 2,000 years have forgotten the promise that Jesus will come for us as well. I am not referring today necessarily to the rapture. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. They are two separate things. The rapture is when we that are saved will be called up to meet Him in the air. But later in Bible uh, prophecy comes the point where we are called and we stand before Jesus Christ, where He comes and rules and reigns, where He steps foot on this earth, the second coming of Christ, where we will now have to answer for everything that we have done in this life. In Acts chapter 1, 9 and 11, just listen to me if you would. It says, And when He had spoken these things, while they behold, he was taken up from a cloud received, and received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken from you into heaven shall so 
shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The moment that Jesus was taken up into heaven, the prophecy was given that he would return. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. That rapture will come when all of us will be called to heaven. And and that's an exciting time in our future. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we don't know when that is going to happen. We can be prepared for it. Now, let me get this straight. Planning for the unexpected and preparing for the unexpected are two different things. Planning for the unexpected is impossible because you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what's going to be required of you. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know what it's going to cost you. It's unexpected. But preparing. We can prepare for the day that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We can know for sure that our eternity is secure. We cannot plan for the unexpected, however. What we can do, and I'm going to switch a gear here, is we can plan for the expected. You cannot, you cannot plan for the unexpected, and that's what happened to the, to the innkeeper that night, not expecting. But we, as Christians today, can prepare for the expected. Do you know what's expected? The Bible says it's expected that we will all stand before the Lord. And that we will give an account. This is not unknown to us. We know that this time will come, and we can plan for it. We can plan for it in our everyday living. We can plan for it in our everyday life, how we interact and what we focus on. The Bible tells us of this time that we can expect to come in Revelation chapter 20. It says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And if we continue to read on, we'll see how that every being, dead or alive, will stand before God and give an account. We will have to answer a question. What have you done with Jesus? You know, that night, that's what was asked to the innkeeper, who was not planning for the expected. He knew what was to come, but he was not expecting it. And Mary and Joseph came to his door and said, What will you do with Jesus? Will you let him be born in your inn? Uh, We don't have have room in our inn. He, He can go down to the stable. A question was asked to that innkeeper, and the same type of question is going to be asked to us, the believer, on the day that we stand before God, and he's going to say, God the Father is going to say, What have you done with my son? Did you let him into your life? Did you have room for him in your inn? And in that day, we will have to answer the question the same way that the innkeeper was forced to answer the question, what have you done or do you have room? When we stand there and God says, what did you do with the time that I gave you? Did you waste it on frivolity? Did you waste it on entertainment? Did you waste it on filthy gain? What have you done with the treasures that I bestowed upon you? What have you done with your wealth? 
Was it all about personal pride and glory and obtaining possessions? He will ask, what have you done with your talents? The abilities that I have given you. What did you do with them? And in the same way, we will have to answer the question that the innkeeper did that day. And I pray, I pray that our response will be, I had no room for Jesus in my life. God, yeah, I had enough room for him to be in the stable. I've accepted him as my savior, but I had no room for him to be in my life. And this is what happened to the innkeeper. No room for him in the inn, but I've got room for him in the stable. It brings us in and draws us into the next thought is that a full inn cannot hold another guest. I know it's hard to comprehend, but a full inn cannot hold another guest. There is, there is no room. And when the innkeeper responded, he responded honestly. I don't believe it was out of malice. I don't believe it was out of hatred. I don't believe it was a response of, hey, you know, you've got this lady here who's pregnant and she was pregnant before you were married and, you know, I just don't want this in my house. I don't believe it was a response, a derogatory response at all. He responded honestly, I have no room. You know what? There's going to be some people that will stand before the Lord on that judgment day. They'll say, you know what? Honestly, I just didn't have room. I just didn't have room. Because a full inn cannot hold another guest. This morning I have a full pitcher of water. And I have a full cup of water. And if this, this pitcher of water represents our life, and I try to, I try, or our heart, and I try to place Jesus into this full heart, it cannot happen. If I pour it in, something has to come out. In order for the contents of this cup to fit into the contents of that pitcher, something has to have been removed. Because a full in cannot hold another guest. And as sure as a full in cannot hold another guest, a full heart cannot have room for Jesus. A full heart cannot have room for Jesus. Look around at us at our society today. Look at the business world. Look at, have you been to the stores lately? You say, oh, they got all their Christmas decorations out. They've got everything. It's all focused on Christmas, you know. No, it's not. They could care less what the season is about. They could care less what you buy in their store as long as you spend your money. There is no room for Jesus in the business world because the focus is money. Look at our government today. There is no room for a God in our government because humanism has taken over. They filled government with humanistic ideas that we really are gods and we know what is best and how to make the best decisions. The hope is not in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Libertarians or the, the Tea Party. That's not where the hope is at because they have removed God from the picture. There is no room for Him. There is no room in our politics. We can say, oh, this politician, he's a great guy, you know, and, and there are some really good politicians out there, but as a whole, politics has been ruined because of greed and immorality and personal agendas. They have filled up their lives with all this stuff that there is no room for God. You say, surely there's room for God in education. Surely there's room for, for God next, next to Socrates and Aristotle. and Surely there's room for Him there at least. 
At least as a philosopher, no. Look at our education system and look at our colleges and look at our high schools. There is no room for God. In all reality, our education system has become the forge that makes the nails that crucifies Jesus to the cross. Because of much learning. You get so smart and you think that you can outthink God or you can discover a better way or really in the end we're all just going to go back to dirt anyway because that's what we're made out of and you get so smart, too good for your own self. There is no room for God in education. There's no room for God in, in, in the secular, secular university. We'll say, surely there's room for God in middle class society. No, there's not. There's not even room for God in most of the time our hearts because we're so busy with uh, friendships in the world. We're so busy with collecting things and having possessions and making sure that we are socially acceptable. Making sure that we don't stick out amongst those that we work with. Making sure that we're not the oddball in the world. There is no room because we, we believe we have a status to maintain. Sadly enough, In many churches today, there isn't even room for Jesus. The churches are so full of themselves that there is no room for God. And if you think to the story and the life of Jesus Christ, who were the greatest opponents to His ministry? The priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people who claimed to be the greatest advocates for the cause of Christ, were His biggest enemies. And the people who sit in the church house who say, I'm a Christian and I've accepted Christ as my Savior and live our lives for ourselves and for our flesh and in what we want to do and what we prioritize, we become the same enemy that the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were. And in the end, who was it that cried for Barabbas when the option was given? It was the common voice of the church of that day. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. In the end, who were the ones that paid off the betrayal of Jesus? The high priest. The people who talked the good talk but would not walk the walk. And the greatest damage today is caused, uh, that is caused in Christianity is caused by those who say, I'm going to live my own way and try to add Jesus to it. The same way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them did. Add Christ to works. Add Christ to their tradition. Add Christ to what they thought was the right thing to do. And it's so sad today that we have no room for Jesus in our lives. Cody. Front row, you're going to get picked on. If you would come down here and stand in the front. All right. Here I have cares of this life, potential things that can fill our hearts so that there's no room for God. Here I have the concern of retirement. It's a burden, something that fills our minds and our thoughts. What am I going to do when I retire? How am I going to survive? How am I going to make a living? What am I going to do? Hold that in your right hand there. Bills. I've got bills coming in every month. Such a burden. These finances, it's just like they just keep piling up. No matter what I do, I can't get ahead. They're, just, they're, they're piled on. And, and just when I think I'm getting ahead, I, I have a big expense. Or just when I get a little bit money in the bank, I go buy something foolishly. 
and it's gone. And these bills, they begin to, to add up pressure. We have the concerns of entertainment. TV and movies and things that obsess our minds. We think about constantly and we can't wait to watch. And really you say, well, is that true? Yes, because these things, they just indwell our hearts. They begin to fill it up. They take up space and time in our lives. And we add this in to our lives. Work. Work's a burden. We're dreading Monday morning. Got to go. Got to go to work. And I know it's a blessing to have a job in the back of our minds. We're thankful for how God provides for us. But it's, hey, it's, it's a burden after all. All of us ideally would like to be that woman who just won $900 million or whatever in the lottery and put in her resignation the same day. All right? We, we would like in the end, you know, and then we say, oh, I'd like to have something to keep me busy. But, you know, in the end, work is a burden. And I understand that many of you, you don't have the privilege like I do. I get to come to work and I'm amongst Christians all day. And I count that as a great privilege and an honor. And I realize that many of you have to go to work on Monday morning and face the world full bore right in your face. And it becomes a burden to you. Children. Are they going to turn out? Are they doing what's right? Are they going to be successful? Is the Lord going to bless them? It becomes a burden that weighs on the heart of every parent. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and it's already a burden for me. Can't imagine when they're 13, 14, getting to teen years. Can't imagine what it's going to be like when they're college-aged. It becomes a burden in our lives. Hold that between your knees. Sports becomes something that fills our lives. It takes up so much time. We're thinking about it constantly. My fantasy team's going to be playing at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Can't wait for this message to be done. I've got to set my line up. You know, I can't. This is going to happen. Monday night football, Thursday night football, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, Friday night basketball. It's just, it's, it's, the, it's there. Ba- baseball season, you know. Good Lord, I hope you don't watch soccer because that's just ridiculous. But maybe you watch soccer and... That is the wrong kind of football to be watching. But hey, maybe you do, and uh, you, that European stuff is always junk. But, okay, so maybe you, want, maybe you like sports. Maybe you like soccer. I don't know. That could be you. That's up to you. That, I'm fine with it, okay? I played when I was in high school, and I was horrible. That's why I hate it. And, um, so, so, but sports, maybe it's that thing that, that holds you back. Pinch that between your chin. Your cell phone. Maybe you're thinking right now, except for the fact that I'm standing down the front with all these signs making an object lesson, other than that, it would be your cell phone. You'd be worried about, hey, it just vibrated in my pocket. I wonder who that was. You start to do your devotions throughout the week, and you're reading on your phone, and then the little messages come through. Your email pops up, and if you're like me, you can't stand that little number one next to your email icon. And so you have to check it to delete it right away because it bothers the snot out of you. And so you're sitting there trying to do your devotions. You're trying to do your devotions, and now you've got to go check your email to get rid of that little symbol. There we go. Do you got room anywhere? We'll just set it here. Many of you, this is how you walked into church this morning. Burdened down with all the cares and the affairs of this life. And there's no room for this. There is no room to place it. Where can he hold it? I can't even sit it on him anywhere where it would would just barely catch room. There is no room for Jesus because... He's going to get a cramp in his neck like that. Look like he's got whiplash by the time he's done here. But there is no room. And here he goes throughout his life. Cody, go ahead and try to walk around a little bit. He walks around. 
He walks around life like he's burdened. And this is how Christianity goes today. We walk around and we call ourselves Christians, but we walk around as though we're burdened. He's already dropping stuff. He, he, he walks around with such a great burden that everywhere he goes, you know what people see? His problems laying around. You're, you left your children in the dust there, buddy. That's okay. My kids love playing on the floor too. Yeah, he held on to everything else. All right, so you see here, go ahead and just drop all those right where you're at. We've got to make room for Jesus. And a full in has no room for Jesus. You may have walked in this morning with all of those burdens, but today Jesus says, cast your care upon me because I care for you. You may have all of the stresses and all of the cares of this life weighted down upon you. Get rid of the burdens. Because when your life is full of all these things, the only place that you have for Jesus is in the stable. He's second thought and second place. He has no priority. He has no priority in entertainment. He has no priority in your Christian living. He has no priority in your child rearing. He has no priority in your finances. Because all of the other burdens take priority first. When there is no room in the inn, there is no room in the inn. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cast your cares upon Jesus, for he careth for you. The Christian life is not a life of burdened living. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how Christ intended for us to live. But when the question was asked that day to that innkeeper, the answer was, I have no room. Thanks, Cody. You can sit down. I have no room. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, at some point you had room in your life for Him. This is a sad fact. It's sad if true. It's worse to invite somebody into your home and say, I've got a place for you, and then kick them back out onto the curb halfway through it. Here's what we do as Christians. Jesus knocks on our heart's door, says, hey, I want to come and I want to fellowship with you. I want to be in your inn. And you say, come on in, Master. I want salvation. I want eternal security. And then here's what we do. We begin to fill our lives with all the things and the burdens of this life. And instead of allowing Jesus to deal with them, we take them upon ourselves. And eventually what we do is we begin to fill the space and fill the space and fill the space until eventually Jesus has been sequestered, He has been squashed, He has been pushed into the corner of our lives. Essentially, back down into the stable where he'll stay till that unexpected day, the day where we haven't planned to stand before God and give the account, to give the answer of everything that we've done with our lives. It's a sobering thought for me to think of all the things that I allow in my life in proportion to what I allow Jesus to do in my life. 
I was talking this morning to the teenagers in class about entertainment. And the thought that I wanted to get across to them and would, would say to you today is we feel that entertainment should be balanced in our Christian life. The Christian life has to have balance as far as entertainment. And that is so true, it does. But not our idea of balance where things are equal. God's idea of balance where it's a little bit of entertainment and a lot of God. We've got the balance scale thing all messed up. Because we say balance, we think things should be level straight across. But God says, no, I want to, you guys have a little bit of this in your life, a little proportion, and a lot of me. And we get it flipped around just as the innkeeper did in his time, we do in our lives. We say, God, there is no room in my inn. The picture of Christ living in our inn is him having full control of our lives. The picture of Christ living in our stable is, I've got salvation and that's all I need from him. Is that all you need from Jesus? That's what we say when all we do in a week is come to church on Sunday morning. God, got room for you in my stable. That's what we do. We minimize him to a little portion of our week. There's no devotions throughout the week. And if there are devotions, they're simply a monument of a devotion. Nothing core there, a hollow statue that's put up. We just read through it, get it done, check it off the list. I'm done for the day. But there is no deep walk with God. When there is no room, there's no room for Jesus. In your hearts today, are you allowing Him to control your life? Or has He been minimized? To a little portion. And I'm not saying that's necessarily that you're off living in some kind of deep sin. I'm just saying that we've got balance out of proportion. That we've taken up a majority of our lives with things that aren't Christ-centered and filled them with junk. Amen. Wasted things. Wasted time. I want to challenge us today to make some room in the end. Get rid of all the burdens and the way that they're down here on the floor today, I would invite you in just a few moments as we have an altar call to cast those before the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm so concerned about all these things. I've got all these, and you have become just a small portion of my life. I want you to retake control. Cast your cares upon Him. It would be the best way that you could ever live your life. Amen. Finally this morning, my last observation is there was no room for Him in the end but He is preparing a room for you. There was no room for Him in the end, but He is preparing a room for you. In John chapter 14, verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I understand that Jesus coming and being born in the stable is a picture of how He would not be welcome even in His home country among his own people. Even during his lifetime, it would be said that he has no place to lay his head. It's an amazing fact to think that Jesus Christ left the splendor of heaven to be born in a manger. The manger. That symbol of humility. What does the manger mean? It shows God's great humiliation. How he came with the express purpose of being despised and rejected of man. In that humblest of births, 
He took the form of a servant and would serve the rest of his life. The manger pictures for us an invitation for the most humble to come unto him. Royalty would have been born in a beautiful throne. Something grander. I don't know about you, but I believe in, in my spirit to approach a grand, th- a grand throne would be something a bit nerve-wracking. To stand before royalty. But the way that Jesus came said, hey, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're at. It was an invitation to the humblest of people. You can come to me. You can come to me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. You don't have to come trembling. You don't have to come in fear. You don't have to hesitate as you approach the manger. We see that as the first, one of the first messages that were delivered were to the humblest of shepherds who came right to the throne. I guarantee you they would not have walked right into the palace to approach the birth of a royal Messiah. But to that humble manger they came. The manger represents a place where animals were fed. Were fed. For us, it represents a place where the basest of men can come. Amen. The simplest of men can come. It doesn't matter what you have done, you can come. It doesn't matter what you have experienced in your life, what sins you have committed. It doesn't matter if you have murdered somebody. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. You can come to Jesus. The idea that any sinner cannot be reformed is an idea that I completely refuse to accept in my life because the way that Jesus came and born in that manger said, anybody can come to me. It doesn't matter what you have done. Anybody can come. Jesus being born in the manger is something special. A manger by itself is nothing. But when Jesus was in that manger, it made that manger something special. The minute Jesus was out of that manger, it went back to being a food trough. But while Jesus was in it, it was his birthplace. It was where Jesus chose to be born. representative of the invitation that he expresses to all. You remove him from it, it just becomes a box with hay in it. Our lives are the same way. With the presence of Jesus in our lives, our lives are everything. Without him in our lives, just as that manger becomes nothing, we are nothing. His birth in the manger, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave is an invitation to you, it's an invitation to me, to come to him. And this morning, I want to ask you, at that point in Jesus' life, there was no room for him in that inn, but he has gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us because we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Because we all deserve a punishment in hell. But God said, hey, I'm not willing that that should happen. I'm not willing that any should perish. So I will send my son to be born in a manger as an invitation to all mankind that whosoever will may come. We have a a sin nature that by default we inherit from Adam 
because we are all humankind. And because of that sin nature, there is a penalty, there is a wage for our sin, as Romans 6.23 tells us. But the gift that we celebrate this time of year, as was shown in Romans 5, verse 8, as God demonstrated His love towards us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that Jesus came and was born in that manger was so that He could live a perfect sinless life and eventually be crucified on that cross. The manger and invitation to cross the payment and the, ex, the outstended hand, the gift of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, tells us, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He has gone to prepare a place for you. Will you find yourself there when you pass over from death to life? It's not a gift that can be earned. It's not something that you can achieve on your own. During the Spanish-American War, Clara Barton was overseeing the work of the Red Cross in Cuba. One day, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt came to her, wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders. But she refused to sell any to him. He was perplexed. His men needed help, and he was prepared to pay out of his own, his own pocket for their, for their well-being for some foods. When he asked someone why he could not buy supplies, he was told, Colonel, just ask for it, and she'll give it to you. The provisions that day from the Red Cross were not for sale. They were simply a free gift that had to be asked for. And today, the free gift for us is eternal life, but it has to be asked for. The price has already been paid. Our penalty has already been covered, but we must accept the free gift. In 1830, George Wilson, nobody of significance except for the fact that he was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail service and was sentenced to be hanged. President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson, but he refused to accept it. The matter went to the Chief Justice Marshal, who concluded that Wilson will have to be executed. A pardon is simply a piece of paper, he wrote, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. For some, the pardon comes too late. For others, the pardon is never accepted. Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you accepted this gift that was offered that day where there was no room in the inn and he was placed in a manger as a perfect picture of how humbly he came and the invitation of eternal life that he offers to you? Do you have that secured? Do you have it settled in your life? The pardon is no good until it has been accepted. The pardon is offered up to you today. As simply as you're sitting under my voice this morning and listening to the words that are being spoken from God's Word, the Bible says, Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. But there has to have been that point where you called. And without the call, the pardon is never received. You can earn, you can try to work for it, you can try to earn it, 
You can try to be a good person and have good morals and do all of the above. You can, you can work and work and work. The Bible says that doesn't get you the pardon. It just simply must be received. And I know in the back of our minds, uh, many of us would say, hey, you know what, I, I've prayed to God many times. That's not accepting the pardon. The Bible says that you must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that you believe, hey, God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I am deserving of this punishment in hell, but I also believe that you sent your son Jesus, and he died for me on that cross to pay the punishment for my sin that I deserve. And today I am accepting your gift of salvation. I am receiving the pardon that you offer to me. And we accept him as our Savior. Maybe that's you this morning. You say, you know what? That's, that's me. I'm not really sure if something were to happen to me that I would wind up in heaven. Don't leave the church today without knowing for sure. Get it settled. The reason for the season is Jesus. And the reason that Jesus came was so that we might have eternal life. Do you know for sure in your heart that you're on your way to heaven? I would ask you all to stand with me this morning if you would. And we're going to have an invitation in just a moment. But I want you to look up here at me if you would for a moment. I want to just go back to the beginning. To the thought of you cannot plan for the unexpected. You may have already got this deal set. You may know for sure already that you're on your way to heaven. And I pray, I pray that that's the case for you. And if you have, are you planning for the expected? I know it's been 2,000 years and the Lord said, I surely come quickly. And it, and it could be any day. No man knows the day or the hour. But are you planning? Because we know that it's going to come. Or will we have to respond as the shepherds or as the innkeeper? Sorry, I have no room. I had no room for you in my life. We all will give an account. And I pray that this morning in my life and in your life that we haven't filled the whole life up with so much stuff that there's no room for Jesus. If everyone would bow your heads and close your eyes.